Welcome to One More Thing with Jay and Robert. I'm Jay. And I'm Robert. One More Thing is a podcast celebrating LGBTQ plus pop culture. We did it. We did it. It took us four seasons. Well, welcome back to One More Thing. We Something to tell our visitors for the day is we have a history series going on in all of our four seasons. Oh, yeah. I forgot to say that when I introduced them to the podcast. <laughs> Great. Sorry. And today, uh, when we were planning season four, we were like, we really want to do something that we don't know a ton about, but we know exists in the city. So the center was at the top of the list, <laughs> honestly. So we are very excited that we have Richard and Robert, who's going by Rob today. <laughs> <laughs> Just to avoid confusion. Mm-hmm. With us uh, from the center. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at the center? Sure. Um, I'll start. My name is Richard Morales, and I'm the manager of community partnerships at the LGBT Community Center. And my role basically entails overseeing our arts and cultural programming. So anything tied to the art exhibitions that we have in our hallway spaces, any programming that stems from those arts and cultural programs, our art exhibits, and then I also oversee the the programs or the partnerships that we have with organizations like NewFest, New York City Opera, Philharmonic, Public Theater, and then also the long-standing programs that we have at the center, such as our Second Tuesday Lecture Series. And then on top of that, also work with community engagement initiatives in order to get more people to showcase their artwork or their performances at the center. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. It's fun. It keeps me busy. <laughs> Last night we had an opera festival and they mm. were they were really great. So, yeah. oh, so wow. I get to see some pretty cool shows. My name is Robert Woodworth, also known as Rob. And I worked for the community center from the the time that we were just buying the building in the end of 1983 up through the end of 2015. Did many different roles, starting from when there was no staff except me to a much bigger, more complex organization. Since I retired, I came back to do some consulting work with the centers that was working with the Lower East Side Tenement Museum and the National Park Service to do oral histories uh, that will now reside in the center archive on behalf of the National Park Service as part of the interpretive material for the Stonewall National Monument. That's been fascinating. Hmm. I bet this year was a lot for you, for, yeah. you, for you both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's all pride all the time now. <laughs> now it's July. Yeah. <laughs> True. So when did you start with the center? I started in November of last year. I used to work for El Museo del Barrio in East Harlem, which is a museum that yeah. focuses on Latin American, Puerto Rican, and Caribbean art. Um, but I, I grew up in New York City. And so when I was a teenager in 95, 96, I started working as a volunteer. Um, I went to a high school in New York City, the Coalition School for Social Change, and they had a community service project that every student needed to participate in. So every Wednesday from about 12 to 3 p.m., 4 p.m., I used to work for Health Outreach to Teens, which used to be housed at the center as part of the community health project right before they moved and became the Callan Lord Community Health Center. Oh, wow. So there's an attachment that I have personally from being a volunteer there. And 
when this opportunity came up to be their manager of community partnerships and work with arts and cultural programming there, it's something that really attracted uh, attracted me because I wanted to kind of diversify the groups that I was working with. I wanted to work specifically with LGBTQ issues. And so um, since November of last year, I've been doing this role and it's been great. You just mentioned that you had been with the center since essentially the beginning. Mm -hmm. How did you get for lack of better words, like roped into all of it at the, <laughs> at the start of it. Yeah, uh, it, it's what I consider one of my uh, 1940s movie plot kind of situations. <laughs> there was a group that nobody knows about anymore called the Community Council of Lesbian and Gay Organizations, which existed for a couple of years in the early 80s in the period when there was more community involvement happening, many groups, but nobody knew where everybody was and what they were doing. And then we'd have major situations that would arise that would require comment and people were looking for somebody to speak on behalf of the community. And so there was an attempt to try to coordinate. In the course of doing that work, we heard about this building on 13th Street and people were talking about, hey, you know, we've always wanted a community center. We think there's a chance we can get this. Take your community council meetings and move them over there. Talk to MCC, get a room. So we started doing that. And then in the course of that work, one day met with Art Strickler, who at that point was very involved in the congregation Bessem Katora, as it was known then. I was doing consulting work, and he said, you know what? The synagogue needs some help with some administrative stuff. Like, we're getting bigger, and we need some help. Would you be interested? Sure. So he went to talk to Irving Cooperberg, who was the president of the board of the, of the synagogue, who said, wait a minute. It's this community center thing where we need the help. Who is this guy? <laughs> So then I got a call from Irving and then met with Irving Cooperberg, the president, and Marcy Khan, the chair, had a couple of meetings with them, and then started consulting to do what was at first thanking people for the money they were giving to help us buy the building. So it was doing it sort of part-time as a consultant for, for a while. That, that's how it got started. There's a whole lot more to the origin story, but that, that's kind of like if I hadn't talked to Art that Saturday, if Art hadn't been going to talk to Irving that afternoon, like who knows what would have happened. Um, so it was meant to be. Oh. oh, that's a great, like, fate meet cute mm -hmm. for you <laughs> yeah. in the center. Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Meet center. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I listen to podcasts on my phone. I do, in fact, listen to them with my cellular device. And you know what else I do on my phone is I follow accounts on social media. What's your favorite account? The One More Thing Instagram account. Do you know what my favorite Twitter is? What's your favorite Twitter? The One More Thing Twitter account. It's the only reason I still have Twitter. <laughs> So if you're already holding your phone to listen to this podcast, why not head on over to twitter.com and follow one more thing with an A, because I was taken. <laughs> and if you're holding your phone still and you want to do something else, you can go over to Instagram and follow one more thing with an A, because I was taken. And then you can go to Facebook and follow One More Thing podcast and Letterboxd and follow One More Thing. I think that's it, right? We post a lot of stuff about the podcast specifically and also news that we're obsessed with. It should be in your close friends list. Like, I, I want to see all y'all. All right. So tell us a little bit about, like, the early days of the center and what sort of it looked like right after you bought the building and you were like putting it together. Yeah. There's a lot of history that I know about the building. Part of it built around what's appeared in the New York Times. Mid-1930s, big renovation. They changed it from a, this 1840s school building that was done for a primary school to a high school. Oh. Food trades in the middle of the Depression to help educate people to go into the food industry, which was everything from restaurants to grocery stores to butcher shops. 
And so they did this huge renovation of the building, finished it in time for the first class in 1938. Then they did a, a formal launch, kind of a introduction of it, dedication in 1941. Big spread in the time, second big, big spread. Mayor LaGuardia came, it was on the radio, he cut onions in the kitchen, and so it was this whole <laughs> huge deal. And so, and it was state-of-the-art at the time. By the time the center bought the building, which we took title in 1984, virtually nothing had been done with the building since. Oh my God. So, it was not in good shape at all. And in fact, in 1960, it wasn't in good shape because Eleanor Roosevelt chaired a committee on behalf of the education department to kind of like survey the infrastructure of the school system. So that a list of all these derelict buildings, 208 <laughs> West 13th Street, yeah. the roof leaks, the equipment is old. I didn't quite say this, but not fit to be a school anymore. Mm -hmm. So they still didn't do anything with it while they were planning to build a new high school and so forth. So we got it and it was very bad condition, exterior and interior, but it was ours, which is the cool thing to remember at that point. You know, it's the first piece of property in a transaction with the city of New York where the words lesbian and gay appear on a deed. Mm. So this organization was created in, the, in this rush to like get save the building. Here it is. Maybe we can use it. We've always wanted a community center. This may be our opportunity. And so Lesbian and Gay Community Services Center was formed and registered in July of 1983 in Washington, D.C. And at the end of December 1983, we had a contract with the city of New York for a million and a half dollar sale. Mm. Wow. Huge effort, largely political, because it was a political decision by the city to agree to the sale. And then we closed the following December 1984 with a mortgage that was held by the city. And so we, unlike any other community center I've ever heard of, were actually in our building before we owned it. Oh. So, oh. yeah, because the city in 1975 or six, after the last class graduated and they decommissioned it as a school, wanted to do something with it. And the community, remember this is the village, so you have to remember, cantankerous, progressive, told the city, no way you're going to sell that to a developer. No evil developers coming into this neighborhood. Right. Uh, so the city, okay, that fine. That was then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the city agreed, okay, fine. We're going to sell it or lease it, but we'll agree to do it to a nonprofit. So initially they leased it to Caring Community, which is still around, runs Meals on Wheels. You'll see their vans every once in a while, who didn't use the whole thing. So they brought in some subtenants to help support the payment of the rent because they had the net lease on this 40,000 square foot building derelict but 40,000 square feet nonetheless <laughs> and two of those subtenants were sage senior action of gay environment as it was known then love sage and we do love sage yeah and metropolitan community church who were there because it was cheap and so they got a cheap rent as a subtenant with caring community and then in the early 80s the city decided you know what we're still paying to keep this thing up so to speak but we don't need it anymore so let's get out of the business of running this building and let's sell it so everybody out, which meant Sage, MCC, but then there were three or four other Friends of the Earth was there, U.S. out of Central America mm. was there, uh, Media Network, and so there was this huge consternation about well, what's going to happen, and so the folks organized around wait a minute, let's see if we can do something to get the building. And there's no telling the story without telling the story of the AIDS crisis. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think we would own the building if, it, if this didn't happen during the middle of the AIDS crisis, in the early days of the AIDS crisis. Because everything was urgent and everything was being created from scratch and people were afraid and, and the people who were beginning to figure out just how dire a situation we were in 
we're beginning to organize and to, and to plan and to try to deal with the crisis. So when the notion of this building on 13th Street becoming available, there was enough experience within the community politically and then in this environment of crisis to say, hey, you know, we've talked about a community ever, ever since Stonewall. I mean, every issue of Come Out magazine that was published by Gay Liberation Front had a thing in it. We need a place to have dances and meetings, know anything, know any place, mm-hmm. tell us. So it wasn't a new idea, but it suddenly, you know, dawned on people that maybe we could do that. The, the stretch was to think that you could buy property in Greenwich Village from the city of New York. Like, right. Really? right. Really? You think? Yeah. And the, Well, yeah, we think. And so there was a lot of organizing, a lot of creative thinking, and a lot of political activism that went into convincing the city. It was all about, we do it or die. I mean, we do it or die. We do it or die. That was, that was kind of what was happening from moment to moment. And one of the key aspects of the deal when it was made was that St. Mark's Clinic and the Gaiman's Health Project, which was had been formed right after Stonewall to do STD testing, still existed. They merged and became Community Health Project, moved into the building as a month-to-month tenant of the city of New York, special dispensation operated health facility in a building which did not have a certificate of occupancy, and it was part of the negotiating tactic. We are in the middle of a crisis. The city is supposed to be doing something. You're not. We will. You have to sell us the building because we have to have this happen. So all of that converged at that time to get the city to say yes. And the city was politically astute at that point. You have to remember, in the post-70s period or after Stonewall, there was a lot of activism that came up through that. And so one of the emblems of that, in my way of thinking, is Virginia Apuzo. She was an activist from very early. She came out right after Stonewall. She was in the convent and went to see Stonewall after she heard about it and said, oh, the convent's not for me anymore. But in 1977, she ran for Congress as an out lesbian from Brooklyn. She did not win, but she ran. Mm -hmm. And so her political life, she became very connected to Mario Cuomo. She was one of the reasons we got Mario Cuomo to come to the center. And then she went on to be a special assistant to Bill Clinton in charge of running Air Force One. Whoa. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in between that, lots of other things. She was, she was an agency person in the Democratic state situation. And she was the head of National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, too. Amazing, amazing person. And she went on to found the center that's in Kingston, New York. So I use that story because it tells you that, the, that there have been enough people around working in the system long enough that they cut their teeth on it. They had relationships with elected officials. And so there's a way to get in the door to be able to talk to people and to convince them that this is the right thing to do. And so that maturation of the political of the community came into play at the same time. So that allowed it to happen. And then, you know, all the people who were dealing with the AIDS crisis were all graduates of GLF and GAA. We have to remember, like, that there's a, there's a through line so that the response to the epidemic really came out of those people and others, of course, but, but people were kind of used to dealing with kind of the city and finding ways to do that and to confront city agencies and the power and all that sort of stuff. I've always asked myself what's motivating me. I've always asked myself, what's your purpose? What is this about? What are you going to do with your life? What, what will it matter? And all of the things that have occurred in my life, the civil rights movement, the struggle for freedom, the whole notion of people breaking free, I find it thrilling. I find that 
that desire to break free and be willing to pay the price, take the risk, it's okay. I found that to be the great adventure in my life. And so, yes, I've always asked myself that question, and I, you know, at 75, I think I've I pretty much found the answer. So, we got the building. It's falling down. It rains inside. Oh. <laughs> but it was ours. Right. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how important it is to say that. Up to that point, there were many groups, but, but no central place where people existed, no central place to contact anybody. There was a gay switchword, which is the closest we came at that point. Period, and there were gay switchboards around the country where you can switch what the gay switchboard. Oh, what's that? There was also a lesbian switchboard. So in the in the in the era of you know pre-internet everything, <laughs> the way you found out stuff was it was wheat pasted to a lamppost, it was in the back page of alternate press, or it was through uh, switchboards because everybody had a phone. That that was the main way to do it, and you could call anonymously. Anonymously, you didn't. The gay switchboard never advertised their address because they didn't want people to find it because they couldn't deal with having crowds. So they were never published in address. There were billboards about gay switchboard in New York. Hmm. And that was the way you connected in. And when you traveled, you found out where the gay switchboard was and you can find out where the bars were and services and so forth. So, you know, at, the, at that point, everything, there's stuff. And if you knew it, you could sort of find it. But there was never a centralized location. So when the center bought this building, it's bricks, it's mortar, it may leak, it may be looking pretty rough around the edges, but it's a physical place, like you can touch it, mm-hmm. you can right. walk into it, you can literally call it, and somebody will answer the phone more regularly than the gay switchboard was able to do, and frankly. We used to refer to the gay switchboard all the time, but then we turned out to be more open than they were. <laughs> so, so, you know, all the questions that our front desk folks get asked, they had to find answers to. And so we became kind of that central kind of communication place. And it was where all the, the weirdo talk shows would come when they needed lesbian mothers to, like, be interviewed on television. Oh, you know, oh, like, Sally, oh, uh, Sally Jesse Raphael wants mm-hmm. to talk to lesbian moms. Ooh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, that, so, so it became this place where where what had been hidden, which is the story of gay people generally, was becoming overtly concrete by having this physical place that was identifiable. And then so it, be, it became a, f- a face of a community which otherwise didn't have one. So it's really, really important. And then the obverse of that is true. It's not only the face out, it's the safe space within. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, we have stories, we get them now. It's the same thing still true, where people will go around the block 10 times before they finally, oh, maybe it's okay, maybe you can go in. Oh, and then yeah. they're transformed when they cross the threshold because whoever they are, whatever they are, however they present themselves, it's too cool. You know? And particularly for somebody of my generation who lived in the closet for so many years, they sort of, it was like crossing into a place where you were suddenly aware that all the internalized hypervigilance of being a gay person in the world, and I'm going to use the terms that I use, was suddenly lifts and you don't even realize you're carrying it around because it's so constant and it becomes so normative that the relief of it is kind of like a surprise. Mm-hmm. And so that became the other crucial part of actually 
getting this place. It's funny that you say that because I feel like the first time that I went to the center, which admittedly was the only time that I've ever been there, I felt that exact feeling, but couldn't put it into words. Mm -hmm. for, like for some reason, I felt very comfortable and yet had never been there before. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we were sort of talking before the mics were on. We were talking about how the center is a place that sort of like has the same mission that we try to have with this podcast of like everyone is welcome and it doesn't matter like literally who you are, how you identify, there will be something for you in it and how we and the center try really hard to make sure that there is literally something for everyone. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. The other part of that, that, was, that part of the origin story, which I think is important for people to remember as we talk about what's happening in terms of how we identify and talk to each other about who we are and the distinctions we make around identity and so forth. In that period, New York had a terrible reputation in the 70s and early 80s. Everybody fought with everybody. Everybody was suspicious of anybody who sort of rose. Because, you know, it's... Remember in 1969, the age of Aquarius was about to dawn, mm -hmm. where the patriarchy would fall. Right. Everybody would be equal. Everything would be done by consensus. And we would move into this new realm of existence. Well, in that realm of existence, where everything is done by consensus, anybody who kind of emerges as somehow like higher in the equality than the other people or the, was always suspect. And so, so there was a, this kind of constant tension. And so the idea was, you want a perfect gay life, go to San Francisco. Like, <laughs> you know, and because, the, the, you know, the boys don't play with the girls, the girls don't play with the boys. They're always fighting with each other. So why do you want to be in New York? AIDS crisis changed that, just to say it. And uh, so at the beginning of the, the center, this is formed by folks who came out of MCC, SAGE, and other community organizations, the founding board, which was a pretty healthy mix of men and women. And so the conversation about naming the institution was very, very carefully thought out. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Because in those days, what do we have to talk about lesbians for? Aren't we all gay? Gay men, gay women. Hey, gay. Mm -hmm. That's the word. And then women were saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, you know you, you're not going to erase us. And that was kind of the conversation at that era. And so the center board made the deliberate decision to use both words and to put lesbian in front of gay to be, be absolutely clear about what the intention was, which is why you tend to see East Coast groups tend to be lesbian and gay. West Coast groups tend to be gay and lesbian. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing, and then community center. You know, as a concept, everybody gets the idea of a community center in some general way, and so but that's pretty straightforward. But out of this kind of cantankerous history, the word services was put in the middle of that between community centers. So community services center to make it absolutely clear that this wasn't somebody's vanity project where they're going to get famous. This was about an institution that was here to serve the community and that's what it was about. Mm -hmm. So it's super thought out, super clear about that. And then kind of one of what's been fundamental to the organization from the beginning is that, and I dealt with all of the, the bookings and getting groups in and figuring out how for all that to happen. Pay the fee, which is a donation. Don't break the law. And we'll figure out a way to get to yes for everybody. So gay male SM activists, which formed like in 81 or so, so forth, and everybody's kind of looking askance at the leather fetish community. They were a major component of the people who used the center because they should. They wanted to. They should. They were very supportive. They raised money. They bought chairs. Big Men's Club was there. You know, and the so big men's the club? big men's club. Yeah. Oh, God, it's about heavy set guys and guys who like heavy set guys. And I'm trying to 
I'm now going to forget exactly the name of the group. They, they, it, was, it was a phenomenon around the country for a long time. No longer tends to exist because people can meet each other online now. They right. Don't, they don't mm-hmm. have to come to an event to connect. Their reach was tri-state. Oh, wow. They would have monthly socials on Saturday night. Once a month, people come from Connecticut, New Jersey, and around the New York to do that because that was the way you could actually socialize and meet other people. We had the urine therapy group during the middle of the AIDS crisis, Water of Life, and that was mm-hmm. from people who had this very particular view about another way that you could find it to get healthy and save yourself. And so our, our job wasn't to curate who was going to be there or to make value judgments about things. Our goal was to get to yes. It was always the goal. Figure out how to do it. Figure out how to get more groups in. Figure out how the meeting schedule is going to work so that we could get to yes as we often as we possibly could. And that sometimes has produced controversy because we got to yes with some people that other people wanted to say no to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. yeah. But that, that was fundamental to it. It was a safe place and it was going to be a safe place. It needed to be a safe place for everybody because if it wasn't for everybody, then it wasn't for anybody. Not really. Right. As the podcast has grown, I keep thinking back to when we first made the podcast. And I remember like taping your comforter up to the window with tape so that the sound didn't bounce off the wall. And our Patreon subscribers who we've kind of welcomed into the One More Thing family over the years have been so helpful to the season two that we did and the season three. And postcast. Yeah. And have really helped us grow. And I just wanted to say thank you. And if you're listening to this and you are not a Patreon subscriber, I would like you to consider maybe becoming one. (laughs) It would be really great if every listener donated $1 because you know what that would do? We'd get a bunch of dollars. And, oh, by the way, we also have a PayPal now. Oh, right? So if you want to make a one-time donation, I literally just remembered this as we're recording this ad. If you want to make a one-time donation, which would be so incredibly kind, you can go to paypal.com and just PayPal us at one more thing. So how do we get from the center that you that we were just talking about to the center that we know now, where now Richard's here and doing all this work with the art programming? Mm-hmm. I And there are a number of groups. I, I would only speak to arts and culture programming, but, you know, from what Robert's spoken about, we've grown to have community support groups. We have groups that provide services for immigrants. We have legal clinics. We have TGNC community support. We have behavioral support, i.e. mental health and counseling and and HIV prep tests and and all that stuff. So there's a whole bunch of different subgroups that exist within within the center that I think expanded from, from what Robert had mentioned from these other smaller groups. Now, each of those areas are also working with other community partners to put together some of these programs for recovery services, for Scrabble game nights, or for, you know, women of color game night, for instance. And so they each kind of branch off from, from different departments within uh, the community support groups that meet there. Um, with my particular role in partnership building, it's looking at some of these other community-based organizations to put together community-driven program, but then at the same time also look at center-driven programming. So our second Tuesday series is the longest-running program that 
kind of in a way gave birth to the ACT UP movement in, in the early 80s. What and is the Second Tuesday movement? It's every month from September through May, and sometimes June. This particular year, we did June. The second Tuesday of each month, we provide a lecture series that interacts with artists, writers, political members, and things like that in order to talk about any particular topic. For instance, in September, we're looking at someone who did a, a republished version of uh, Walt Whitman text that uh. was long gone, but then resurfaced and, and things like that. So we'll be looking at things like that, for instance. Hmm. But also expanding that to talk about other things outside of the literary genres, the right. liter literary world, like with artists and things like that. So I, in terms of programming that I'm looking at now, it's also about that while there were or there are projects that people approach us about, I think it's also really important to kind of keep your finger on the pulse and see what else is being out there or being done out there. So I have a community organizing background from the work that I did in my previous position to what I'm doing now. Um, and I'm very adamant about going out into the communities in order to hear what they're working on and also to, you know, put that out there that the center can be a space for them to showcase some of that work. So trying to get some of those marginalized voices, even within our own communities, like when we look at um, people of color communities, queer people of color communities, TJNC communities, how can we create programs that also open up the space for them in a way that kind of demystifies the stereotype of like what the center is and who the center caters to, you know? What, like what are those misconceptions that you hear so much about? But then also we were talking about the AIDS crisis. So what do, do you think that over time as the country has kind of shifted and especially the city has shifted, the center has shifted with it or has just always been trying to do, as you said, outreach to bring people and art and services into the center? Well, I'd say it, the, the mission is the same. The world has changed and the center, let me put it this way. The, I run into older folks who are around in the 80s who will say, oh, you know, it was so cool back then. It was kind of grungy, but, you know, I really felt at home and it was really wonderful. And I say, I get it. But if we were still that now, we would not exist mm -hmm. because the world mm -hmm. then is not the world now. The world is different. And so the center has to be in the world in which it is, not in the world in which it was. But the fundamental belief is the same. It's just that we approach it differently. And we're fortunate enough to have been around long enough and to have a solid fundraising base and so forth to be able to uh, be smart about resources, use social media, use the new media, find ways to reach people in, in ways that didn't exist before, and to go outside the walls of the building. So it, 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 it's kind of like the amoebic growth, yeah. <laughs> um, where, you know, remember, it was a safe space to begin with. The first thing was, it's like, grab this thing, make it our own, figure out how to keep it, and keep it safe inside. Mm. And then as, as the institution evolved, then it became a question of, well, there's a world outside of here, which, which is part of impacting on us, so we need to impact it. Mm. So all the advocacy programming, which has taken many different forms, we have spawned organizations where we've like, gone out into the world through the work that we've done and the support we've given to other organizations. So I think we're still doing that, and we're just doing it in slightly different ways. And there are misconceptions and misperceptions which happen because human beings are human beings, you know? You know what you know, and then you think you know it all, but maybe you don't. <laughs> so I think it's constantly a, a part of our 
goal and the goal of the communications team in particular, as well as Richard and, and the programming folks, to have people be clearer about what it is. And the other thing which drives me nuts, I have to say, in this <laughs> era where everybody from the time you're 12, you have a brand. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we've all bought into that corporate branding culture. It's like everybody does it. And which means you have to have a tagline of three words, which is supposed to tell everybody everything they need to know about you. Drives me crazy. And so I propose that we remember that there is complexity and nuance in the world. <laughs> and when we're talking about an institution which does so many different things, it cannot be reduced to, to a few words. Yeah, totally. Of course we do the, we do the branding and all this sort of stuff and, and, and devote a lot of resources to, to trying to make all of that clear. Um, but when we're talking to folks who are listening to this conversation, I just want them to know that we are not touching on everything. Yeah. And there's right. more. And you need to come. We're open 365 days a, a year. You need to walk in. There's a cafe. There's a car. <laughs> you can, yeah, we have the Bureau of General Services Queer Division, which is a bookstore. There's the and art hiring space. Too. Yeah. And art in the building that you can see. So if you're at all curious, that's the way to do it. And you can also go online. But I think you really need to get into the place to kind yeah, of you gotta get go. the flavor, flavor of it. So, um, so Robert has to come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also have it set up, too, in a way where if you feel like, and, and it's understandable, you know, for people that might be still in the closet or questioning or are just not used to asking certain types of questions, right? Like, where can I get X, Y, and Z service, right? We have it pretty clear once you walk in the building that there's a little sheet that we brought here for you. Yeah, we have the sheet in front of us. Where someone can just walk up in there and just look at that sheet and say like, oh, okay, that's what I feel like I need right now. I'm going to go to that room at that time. If it's an open meeting or if it's a closed meeting, you know, then that's a different story. But, you know, it's, it's also still holding on to that notion of, being open and available to anybody when we were talking about this before we were like you know just come in and use the bathroom it's open nobody's going to ask you what you're doing there you know in comparison to some of the other places where you might feel like you have to check in first at the front desk in order to say like i'm going here i think it's just like the way that being in new york you're just kind of ingrained in that whole system like all visitors like when we walked into this building it's like all visitors must check yeah. in at the front mm -hmm. desk and then you know you're expecting to show ID and all this other mm -hmm. stuff and we say we're going to this floor and they just point the finger to the elevator and yeah. it's that easy but you know we don't have really have that as as a system at the center you know it's pretty much like you know you just walk in and you could just be there and sit in a specific spot if you want to I want to go back to one of the things that you had asked before about like the change in in the political sphere and also these kind of misconceptions and you know when we were talking about this before Robert and I were talking about these misconceptions of that because it's the LGBT community services center that it's only for services for people that are in trouble mm. right and I think that's that's mm -hmm. one of the the misconceptions too that it's not only recovery support it's just for people who might not have anything to do and just want to sit there and talk to their friends. We have what I call like the usual suspects that sit by our elliptical stairwell and just sit there every day from like 
9 a.m. in the morning when the first one arrives to about 6 p.m., 7 p.m. when it's time to go, right? Nobody's asking them what they're doing there. Nobody's saying, well, you can't do this or you can't do that. As long as you're not being disrespectful, obviously, you know, like it's, it's, it's still available to them, right? I guess the other, the other thing that we were, we were talking about too was this, we are going to be affected by what's going on externally, right? You know, uh, city funding changes, that can affect programming if a certain a specific council member that used to give funding to an organization is either term limit or just, you know, on a national level when we look at government agencies, and especially in this particular administration, where services for specific things start getting reduced because funding starts getting reduced. When we look at organizations that work with reproductive rights, for instance, you know, and the, the struggles that they're going through right now with regards to um, funding certain programs, I think that that's something to, to also take into to account when we look at what the changing political landscape does for specific organizations like, like the center and, and other nonprofits too. So going back to season two, we started at this thing called the Movie Club, which is a term we invented. Mm-hmm. We watched Me, Him, Her with you guys. We watched Carol and Call Me By Your Name with you guys. And we talked about these movies. And this season, we would like to bring you our newest movie club. <sighs> it's called Vita and Virginia. It comes out in theaters on August 30th. And we're going to be discussing it on September 2nd. So you have the week, the first weekend it comes out to go see it. You can go to any theater where it's playing and just say, hi, I'd like a ticket for Vita and Virginia. And then they'll give you a ticket and you'll pay. And then you'll go in, you'll sit through some previews, probably like five or six, depending on the theater. Then you'll see the movie. <laughs> then you'll come out of the movie. You'll go home. You'll wait a couple days. And then on Monday, you'll have a new episode from us about it. There's not really much else to yeah, it. That's it. <laughs> I, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about the the center show um, from 1989, which then I I feel like almost opened the door for artists to come to the center and intervene a building that was dilapidated, that was falling apart, and rather than you know pay for a massive renovation, invited Rick Barnett and Barbara Solomon, who were the curators at that time, invited 50 different artists to divide it equally be- between men or men identified, women identified artists to intervene the building. And I feel like that in a way almost opened up the door for more arts programming also mm-hmm. and brought the center to, uh, at least on an international art level, kind of put that on people's radar, so to speak. You know, you had anyone, you had people from Keith Haring to, you know, Doreen Gallo, or local artists and things like that, where, um, you know, I think it... it think it played a role in, in at least opening it up as a space where one can show their artwork you know so mm-hmm. to speak in a time period where queer arts was heavily censored in all these institutions you know pr- right before this center show happened in na- 1989 robert maplethorpe show at the corcoran gallery was being censored and right. taken down and closed because of what he photographed right and so here we have a center bathroom that has basically you know this orgy of men you know and you know i i find it i find it fascinating that 
the centers played that role in kind of being a space that was open to the public and had this kind of work where people can walk in and see these kinds of artworks that were kind of pushing the boundaries of what censorship was for LGBTQ arts at that you time. You said orgy of men in the bathroom, and I was very confused for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the second floor, room 205, if you go into the center, it, it's no longer a bathroom, but we have kept it with at least the original tallying and, and things like that. But it's the, the Keith Haring Once Upon a Time mural that he painted in 1989, right before he passed away in February of 1990. There's a through line there, which I find fascinating as well. Um, in the 70s, you know, the East Village art scene, which included Keith Haring and a bunch of other people, were doing art on the piers that had been abandoned along the west side. Mm-hmm. They were piers Gordon all the way up and down. Yeah. And so they would go in and they'd do performance art, they'd do art on the walls. It was a cruising area, and I think there are maybe three or four people who were in the center show who were known artists in that, including two women, um, so it wasn't just a male space. But when Rick Barnett came, approached us, he said, you know what, the 20th anniversary of Stonewall's coming, and my friend Barbara and I have an idea that we should, we should do some kind of a show. Would you be open to that? So I met with him first, and they talked to the board and said, go. And it was like the building was such a <laughs> rotten shape anyway. Like <laughs> anything you can do to make it look better. But it was the same thing. It was like taking over a public space or, uh, uh, yeah, a public space. And it's like guerrilla art in public space. The only reason it could happen is because the center was a wreck. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't do it today. Right. Not in the same way. Not anywhere near close. And it got a lot of attention. And we made a commitment because it was clear it was always supposed to run for six months, June 1 to December through December of uh, 1989, and made a decision that during all the renovations, we'd been to two major renovations since then, and to save as much of it as we possibly could. Some of it was portable, some of it was attached to the architecture, some of it did not survive being attached to the architecture it was attached to. But we're fortunate that we've got the herring mural and a bunch of other pieces. So that, that you know, listeners... <laughs> is another thing you can do when you go because you can get a map at the front desk that will show you and you sort of like a scavenger hunt go find all the art in the building mm-hmm. which is fascinating oh, in and we of have itself to do so it. yeah, yeah we got to yeah. do it so you <laughs> should definitely do that uh, and and as richard said it, it kind of like opened up it was our first real foray into the art world where they got a lot of attention um, and we're realizing although it, it, it wasn't it wasn't like the it hadn't, it's not that it hadn't occurred. Like, remember, we're, we're complexity and nuance is part of all of this. People were aware from the beginning that there was many, many kinds of things to do. And, in fact, our founding president always said, we are building for the generation after AIDS. And in this moment, people have got to be able to come here to have fun. Mm-hmm. It is not just about the AIDS crisis. This is about something bigger that's broader and it's, and it's going to last beyond the disease so our first big volunteer group was a dance committee so we used to have dances in this rundown ratty place but but they ran for years and and then other volunteers came forward as we did all of that and remember everything was run by volunteers pretty much at the beginning um a couple of very creative folks who did the first art programming uh, the the second tuesdays program was devised by two of our founding board members mm-hmm. Um, and it's still volunteer-led, too. Oh, wow. Volunteer-run, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, there have been all kinds of... The, the the roster of people who have actually appeared in that building is actually pretty astounding when you think about it in terms yeah. of... Like 
politicians, artists, Lord, filmmakers. Elaine Stritch, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah. a number of people. Yeah. Wow, two winners right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, that was an amazing night, I will tell you. Yeah. I've also wanted to bring up the, the other thing that, uh, about a, the misconception, right? You know, this, this misconception of like catering towards older white gay men, you know, um, that's pretty, I think one of the things that is also a very special near and dear program, and I think innovative program too, to the centers, the youth enrichment services programs that mm-hmm. we have, um, you know, we have programs that are also looking at recovery programs for teenagers that are abusing substances, for instance. When we get back to um, my involvement in the center and how I, I, what ways I was involved and how I, I got to where I'm at right now, you know, like I mentioned that I had a community service project that I was um, a part of, but at the same time I was volunteering there, I was also utilizing some of their services, you know. I grew up in a Pentecostal Puerto Rican household in Brooklyn, and so for me, when I was thinking about my my coming out process, I came out when I was 14, which would be like around 95, 96. I didn't really find a way or know how to address some of these issues that I was going through with my parents without feeling like I was going to get kicked out because at that that point I was already hanging out um, or like sneaking out to like pride marches and things like that saying I was going to go to the library. I'd run into a whole bunch of people that were kicked out of their homes because they came out and they came, came from like these very strict communities of color. They came from these very strict religious families and things like that. And once they came out, they were thrown out. So I never knew if that was going to happen to me. So I would start doing my research of where I could go to get services if, if for whatever reason, my parents kicked me out. I was lucky that they didn't when I did come out, but I didn't know that before that. So I had a whole list of Safeway houses to go to. I knew that from my interactions with going to the, these like youth enrichment programs at the center that I wasn't alone and that there was going to be options for me, you know. And I, I think that still continues about, you know, stemming from what you're talking about with the founding president or director of the center saying, like, we want to create a space for, you know, people after AIDS. You know, I think that that's still relevant in terms of talking about, yes, the AIDS epidemic pandemic is still a thing you know we still have to have that conversation but that also we inspire other youth that are possibly going through these uh, questions that continue to be a part of our stories and our histories that they can at least have a space for for that and you know we do a lot of teen programming especially during the academic year and i think a lot of that's done also just to you know create these networks of support and create a positive environment for them to be comfortable in their own skin. So, This is the place where people come when they need to be around, when they want to be around their community. We help people live better lives. That's what the center does. People walk in here struggling with issues, uh, feeling isolated, lacking community connection, and they walk out of here feeling better. And that's what happens on a daily basis. In March of 1987, Nora Ephron was supposed to come up from Washington to speak at Second Tuesdays, and a couple of days ahead of time, she couldn't make it for whatever reason. So uh, 
it's been publicized, you know, we put it out in the world that uh, Nora Ephron's going to be here, so we have to have somebody show up. And <clears throat> so the organizers were tossing around people that they knew, who, who's in town, who's in town, and figure, oh, Larry Kramer's in town, so maybe he'll do it. So they called Larry, and Larry said, sure. Larry Kramer, uh, for those who don't know, was the founder, one of the co-founders of Gay Men's Health Crisis, and was very active in the AIDS community, and act up in all of that. So Larry comes, and... Chris Collins, who's on our board, I forgot who he was president at the time, but he, he was down in the meeting, and I'm up on the third floor in my office. And it started, so Chris comes up and says, hmm, he said, Larry's got everybody all excited, and they think they want to have another meeting. Like, they, 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 they may want to have something happen. And so is there another time where we can meet this week? So people want to get together and say, okay, fine. So I figured that out all on paper at that point, of course. <laughs> uh, Chris runs back downstairs, and then a while later, he's back up. Oh, can we meet every week? Is there a room that's available every week where they can have a meeting? And, and it looks like there's going to be a lot of people. So as it happened, they were meeting in the first floor assembly space, and that room, I could figure out how to make that work every Monday, starting within the next week or two. Back down he goes. And then so in the course of that meeting... Larry says, everybody in the side of the room, stand up. All you people sitting there, look at them. They're going to be dead in a year unless we do something. And so that was part of what I heard went on. And so they literally formed ACT UP in the space of an hour and a half. If they hadn't named it that night, they named it very shortly thereafter. And then Monday after Monday after Monday after Monday for years, they put far too many people in that room. <laughs> it was uncomfortable, not to mention necessarily unsafe um but they, but they did Fire everything cut. they put fans in because we had no air conditioning they did all kinds of stuff and so you need to go and watch how to survive a plague yeah mm -hmm. which has shots of act up meetings in that space mm -hmm. along with other other things so and so that that's part of the origin story it's like it's in our dna that we were there and we were a resource that allowed that to happen. And it's not that ACT UP wouldn't have happened some way or another, but it definitely was a whole lot easier for it to happen because it was a place. Everybody knew where it was. They were already there. And, the, and they could meet every week. And yeah. I've never seen anything like it since in terms of just the longevity of that initial kind of energy being sustained over and they did all kinds of stuff they did pajama parties to raise money they did artworks and every poster that went down to the national institutes of health they made in that building and then loaded onto a truck or a bus and took to washington or down to wall street and they did demos and stuff yeah all kinds and then they spun off other you know the aids treatment group and housing works and all that other stuff all spun off of side meetings that they would have and subcommittees that they would have that all met at the center so as we wrap up, is there anything that you want to say about the center that we have not gotten to yet? I think just show up. You know, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. that's one of the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the common question when people ask is like, oh, well, how can people get involved? And it, it always runs into this, like, become a member, volunteer. And, you know, we, we touched upon it before. Mm -hmm. Just go in and use the bathroom. Go in, get a coffee. Go in and take a seat. There are other ways too. We have um, we touched on our, our advocacy network, and you know we have an advocacy program called Rise Out that anybody can be involved. There's a mobile network also that people can um, subscribe to in order to get um, updates on any of the initiatives that we're working on. You know we fought really hard um, for the Trans Panic Defense, which is now banned in New York. Mm -hmm. 
we fought a lot for gender, which is also something that, you know, um, it's been a part of the work that we've done through this advocacy network. And But that doesn't mean that the conversation stops there. You know, there's still other, other states in the U.S. that utilize this defense, for instance, to justify violence against LGBTQ communities. And so there are ways to be involved. Um, you can text RISE OUT to 69866, it's all one word, and you can get updates about um, sending letters to specific Congress members and really pushing elected officials to take action to protect our, our rights, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny that just in this conversation that we've had today, that we were talking about gay switchboards earlier, and now it's yeah, and now we're talking about <laughs> like text this number. Yeah, mobile right. networks—they yeah. still exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. right. And, and I would just say, homophobia is alive and well in the United States of America, mm-hmm. and there are times when we kind of forget that here. We are, too. you know, there's a certain amount of privilege we have because of living where we do. Those those of us who are within the city or within particular parts of the city. So I always try to remember that because. Not everybody has that, and and there's a lot of people who don't. When we have, uh, and and I've also realized one of the important parts of the center is for visitors who come from elsewhere, and I particularly had this with people from other continents. We've had a lot of foreign visitors uh, that have had the opportunity to meet from all over, every place except Antarctica. (laughs) What I came to realize is that there were these oohs and these ahs, and the people would come in, and they would look at it, and and then hear about what their stories are in South Asia or in... Uh, in Africa in terms of what their experiences are. And I realized one of the most important things that the center does is it's a, it's a, it's a piece of hope for people who don't have it yet. And, and so when we send people out into the world who have been there, who tell stories about it, or when people come in to get to see it, it is a way to help express what Irving always said from the beginning is that we're building for the generation past days and we're building for something where we deserve it. We've, we've internalized our own homophobia and come to hate ourselves and we, we're still getting over that. And so, uh, so we are a symbol of hope for people who, who can someday have what we have. So it's very important to us that, we, that it looks good, it functions well, and when people go in there, not only are they doing something to advance the cause, but they're also having fun and getting stuff out of it. So, so it's feed yourself with it. When you're feeling like you're just pissed off and there's something that you need to do, go talk to the folks at the front desk and say, what's going on? Go on the website. Like, but, but know that there's something to give, but there's something to get. And it's, mm-hmm. the more we do that, the better off we'll all be in the long run. Well, thank you both for coming in today. Yeah, thank you so <laughs> much. This has been thank so much more than I could have ever asked for. <laughs> yeah, so much fun. And you can all go visit the center at 208 West 13th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. And if you don't live in New York, you can go to gaycenter.org just to, you know, see what it's about. And thank you to both of you for being here with us today. Thank you to our PA, David Zimmerman, for helping us out with this episode. Thank you to Abby Davis for making us artwork. And thank you to Rory O'Hara, who was in the booth today. (laughs) I thought he was going to say you're welcome, but he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it, right? Yeah. Yeah.